and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 137, No Good Deed. Army Group Center. Minsk had fallen. Now it was time to continue on, on east by northeast, and make for the next major target, Smolensk. But first, the way had to be cleared by capturing the land bridge, if you will, of the open area in between Vyptesk and Orsha, to the west of Smolensk. But there was still the matter of the Stalin line. But considering the still-forming defensive lines before them, and the sheer size of the area, Bach, the Army Group Center commander, knew he had to keep his two panzer groups in his possession. But the other Army Groups needed help, the help of panzers. And keep in mind, there were no reserves to draw upon. In time, everyone who mattered in Berlin would say at one point in the near future that this was the most important decision of the whole war. Who should receive some of Army Group Center's tanks? Lieb of Army Group North or Rundstedt of Army Group South? Because the idea was to make the best decision in regards to keeping this conflict for all the size of European Russia, a short war. But on the other side, the Stavka was making its decisions in terms of surviving and ultimately winning a long, drawn-out war. After all, Soviet Russia had the men. They could build the weapons of war, given Stalin's first two five-year plans of industrializing his country. They just needed time. So all decisions for Moscow were made with this condition in the fore. And helping the Russians with this and hurting the Germans were those two massive pockets of trapped men around Bielystok and just west of Minsk. Yes, the city had fallen, but those Russian troops were still resisting. They were running out of everything, and some of the men had separated themselves in order to flee east, but those that stayed were fighting hard and not giving up. Also, the Soviet forces to the north and south were having comparatively better success. Perhaps this was the beginning of the Russians at least slowing down and maybe, perhaps, stopping the German advance. After all, the Russian units to the far north had been shattered, the survivors retreating, but now new lines were forming before Leningrad. Kiev was still in Russian hands, and the invaders had not pushed back the defenders to the Dnieper River in southern Russia. For Army Group Center, the next phase lay before them, Smolensk. Yet Hitler had given an order that the panzers of Army Group Center were to halt until those trapped Soviet troops to the west of Smolensk could be eliminated. But putting Hitler's nerves aside for a moment, everyone involved knew the entire basis of victory for Germany was not allowing the Russians time to mobilize their millions. So, with that in mind, it was time for Auftragstaktik, which means that subordinates could, without an explicit order from above, decide certain tactics for themselves, if it was in accordance with the overall strategy. And everyone who mattered in a German uniform knew that meant the capture of Moscow no matter what Hitler had uttered during some of his long speeches to his generals. So Guderian, as was his personality, kept his panzers going. 
Hoth did the same thing, as it was militarily prudent to do so. Now back on the move, the Panzers needed to cross the western Dnieper and Vina rivers, respectively, and get to the Vitkis-Orsha-Smolensk Triangle. This would set up the fall of Smolensk and open the way to Moscow. But military prudence demanded that Army Group Center's flanks be secured, which wasn't happening, with Army Group North and Army Group South's less impressive penetrations. But first things first. In practical terms, Army Group Center needed to shore up its encirclement, or keel, just west of Minsk, to halt the flow of escaping Soviet troops near the city, which would also help capture remaining troops from around Bielystok, further west. The destruction of the trapped enemy troops would go to Kluge's 4th and Strauss's 9th armies, while the tanks of Hoth's 3rd and Guderian's 2nd panzer groups moved on. Yet the German military was having trouble with these stubborn Russians around Bielystok, which left the panzers, those left behind just west of Minsk, with the job of holding up the trapped men before them. Honestly, they could have used more tanks, but Guderian was too busy seeking glory and Hoth trying to keep up. Field Marshal Bach was already receiving reports that massive Soviet troops were lining up before Smolensk, which meant that when his men got there, they would have a time-delaying fight on their hands, and this was not part of the plan. But Braulich, the commander-in-chief of the army, believed he had worked out a plan to a problem he foresaw back in late June. His idea was to take Hoth's 3rd and Guderian's 2nd Panzer Groups, put them with infantry divisions of the 4th and 9th Armies, once they were able to disentangle themselves from reducing the Soviet keels, place them under the command of Kluge's 4th Army, and send them east, thus creating a 4th Panzer Army. This would leave the task of reducing the encircled enemy troops to the other units of the 4th and 9th Armies, along with the yet-committed 2nd Army. In short, Army Group Center would be broken into two formations. One would handle the trapped Soviet troops, while the other got on with keeping Barbarossa going. Bach would still be in overall command, of course, but that's not how he saw it. The field marshal worded his displeasure at this idea with concerns about there being another level of command between himself and the troops, that Kluge's headquarters was not set up to direct panzers. For one thing, they didn't have enough radio equipment. But in reality, it came down to egos and pride. Bach knew that a leader with less troops was a less powerful leader. What's more, Kluge's style of leadership did not mix well with the independent-thinking Hoth and Guderian, not to mention the little race for glory these two were already engaged in. And not to put too fine a point on it, Guderian stated he would resign if he had to work under Kluge, right in the middle of a war. Still, if this infighting got back to Hitler, Bach himself offered up a compromise. Kluge's 4th Army could have the two panzer groups, but no massive infantry armies. He wasn't about to be outdone, and this solution meant that Kluge would not be rivaling him. The compromise 
was agreed to. Honor was satisfied. The war could be gotten back to. By the time of this compromise, the Soviet defenses along the Dnieper to the southwest of Smolensk and the Vina to the northwest was taking shape. The Soviet Western's Front Fourth Army, or rather its remains, along with the 13th Army, which had been moved up from the second major line of defense, were put into place. They would be joined by five other armies of Marshal Budeni's reserve forces. They were a small part of his 35 newly formed, yet inadequately trained and equipped, divisions. While these units were on the move, given the limited rails and roads of western Russia, the other weakened units mentioned earlier were Smolensk's only defense. But as these various lines of defense consisted of mostly rifle divisions, Moscow knew they would not be enough to hold back Army Group Center's 1,000 tanks and 6,000 guns coming their way, though they obviously didn't know these exact numbers. So, per standing Soviet doctrine, six mechanized corps were moved up from internal locations from further east in Russia. Again, the Germans would not know of these as they had been stationed beyond their intelligence gathering prior to the war. Stalin had hoped these units would form the basis of his first major counterattack against Army Group Center, but for now, defense was the order of the day. Beyond this, other reserve armies were put into place to the east of Smolensk, blocking the roads to Moscow. The panzers of Hoth and Guderian moved on. Bach of Army Group Center believed, as had Berlin, that everything the Russians had from Minsk to Moscow had already been committed and destroyed. Sure, there would be remnant forces, but the battle was mostly over. Now it was just a matter of making the journey to the Soviet capital. So July 2nd found the panzer commanders now past Minsk, heading for the river Berezina, some 45 miles or 80 kilometers east of the recently fallen city. As the river flowed, Hoth was a bit closer. Though, despite this advantage, Hoth's tanks found themselves dealing with swampland and dozens of wooden bridges that could barely, or not at all, handle the weight of his armored units. Beyond this, his tanks suffered from days of heavy rains, so he was slowed down. And even though he was using fewer tanks, having left more behind at Minsk, Hoth's third panzer group would head east in two arcs. One would swing wide north and pass through Polosk and Vitesk, some 100 miles or 180 kilometers northeast from Minsk. The other would take a more direct approach, but stay to the north or on the left bank of the Dnieper River, where it turned east and practically led directly to Smolensk. As for the Russians, they knew this area well, and that the panzers would not have an easy time of it. So, on July 4th, the Stavka ordered Timoshenko's western front to organize a reliable defense along the western Vina and Dnieper river lines, and, after concentrating reserves, deliver a series of counterstrokes. This last part was a flight of fancy, but that didn't mean a short offensive could not be offered up for defensive purposes. 
The response to this order came two days later, on July 6th, in the form of Lieutenant General Kurochkin's 20th Army of seven rifle divisions led by the 5th and 7th Mechanized Corps. Their target, Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group. The plan was to hit the Panzers on their flanks and rear, but by now, the Germans were looking for this. So even though the Russians came with 2,000 tanks, the five-day battle, in which the Russians were not the equal of their adversary in command and control or logistics, saw the German panzers, which were managed beautifully because they all had radios, dance around their enemies while engaging in hit-and-run tactics. They also continued moving east, destroying 832 Russian tanks and killing many of the personnel of the rifle divisions. By July 11th, the remains of the two Soviet mechanized corps, with the bloody riflemen in tow, were able to disengage and trudge their way to Smolensk. Hoth's men continued on, seeking the Vina to take the bridges at Polotsk and Vitebsk. Despite his head start, and quite frankly cheating, Guderian got Hoth to use some of his tanks to seal the ring just west of Minsk in territory Guderian was responsible for, it would be his second panzer group that had the harder time crossing the Berezina. Guderian knew that a bridgehead was waiting for him near Borisov along the Berezina, but he also knew that the German 18th Army had paid a heavy price for it. Borisov mostly on the western side of the Berezina, didn't have much in the way of opposition. Just the remains of the shattered 13th Soviet Army and some students of the Borisov Tank School, which had a few tanks. But what they did have were orders to blow the bridges across the river and hold up the Germans. Yet before they could do this, a German infantry platoon fought their way into the Russian holdout on the western side of the bridge and captured the crew before they could activate their fuses. That afternoon of July 1st, panzers from the 18th Panzer Division crossed over to the eastern side. But Stalin knew that if the Germans crossed here and Hoth's tanks continued east to the north of Guderian's panzers, Smolensk would go the way of Minsk, which would leave the roads to Moscow open. So the bridges at Borisov had to be retaken or destroyed. Therefore, days before, Stalin had ordered the 1st Moscow Motorized Division under General Kreiser into position. The Germans knew they were coming, having received Luftwaffe reports of the convoy on the highway from Smolensk, as well as intercepting Soviet radio transmissions. To prepare for this next battle, the 18th Panzer Division, under the direct control of General Niering, pushed the Russians on the eastern side of the bridge further back by some 24 kilometers. Guderian received this news well, yet ordered the 7th Panzer Division, still at Minsk, to send units from it to the coming fight. The men and tanks arrived during the night of July 3rd. But earlier that day, Guderian received ominous news from the Luftwaffe patrols, stating that they had spotted seemingly endless lines of motorized infantry vehicles with at least 100 tanks, most of them heavier models.
What they didn't know was that these tanks were indeed the KV-1s and KV-2s and T-34s. The last one had a 152mm gun, which weighed more than the entire light Panzer IV tank. The Russian units, probably being whipped from behind by Stalin and Zhukov, went into action on the very day they arrived at the Germans' defensive line, on July 3rd. This surprised the 18th Panzer Division, who assumed they would rest first. But that was nothing compared to the surprise they got when they engaged the heavier tanks. The Soviet Division's 12th Tank Regiment, along with a company of KV tanks, came at the bridgehead, with motorized infantry on either side. At first, the Germans literally panicked as their initial shots bounced off the thick machines. But then, their training kicked in. Their panzers might not have been able to pierce the holes of the KV or the T-34, but their 88mm anti-aircraft guns with armor-piercing shells could. So they were used without thought of husbanding shells for later. Between this and being attacked by the Luftwaffe, the Soviet tanks were reduced over time. Yet before they were ruined, the Soviet tanks savagely damaged the 18th's heavy tanks and completely wrecked their lighter vehicles. After the initial Soviet dash was subdued, the panzers moved in. It was clear to them that the Russian tanks, or very few of them, could communicate with each other. So, focusing their vehicles, they harnessed their firepower, taking out the light tanks first and then ganging up on the KV and T-34s. As for the heavier tanks, the Germans quickly found that by taking out their tracks, they could flank them and hit them somewhere else besides their very thick fronts. Yet, before some of the last tanks could be taken out, they simply ran out of gas, having gone straight into battle. These were incorporated by the Germans. On a side note, Guderian personally inspected the T-34s, found them worthy, and sent some back to Germany. Within two years, even heavier models of the T-34, the Panzer V, or Panther, tank, was being produced. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
The few Soviet troops that survived this battle, or were not captured, retreated 73 kilometers east, where the new defensive line seemed to be forming, yet still to the west of Smolensk. And there they would have plenty of company, as the entire Soviet front seemed to be falling back. The way to the Vina and Dnieper was open. Army Group North was back on the move. Kukler's 18th Army advanced north into Estonia. Hopner's 4th Panzer Group made for Leningrad and Novgorod, just 100 miles, or 200 kilometers, south of Leningrad, just above Lake Ilmen, while Bush's 16th Army approached Staria Rusa to the east and southeast, just below Ilmen. The Russians were as ready as limited supplies and time would allow them to be. Their new line, the Luga Defense Line, ran from the Gulf of Narva to Lake Ilmen and some beyond that. There were also three additional lines forming behind this one. From July 9th to the 12th, the German panzers of Reinhardt's 41st Motorized Corps, with the 38th Army Corps just behind it, drove east and northeast, without opposition. But then they reached the Luga River to the left of center of the Soviet defensive line on July 13th. There, the panzers managed to capture several bridgeheads. These tanks were now just 110 kilometers, or 66 miles, from Leningrad. But that was as far as the panzers were going, for now. Capturing the western side of the bridge was one thing. Crossing it and still being in one piece was another. Marshal Vorshilov had recently sent out the word. Leningrad was to be held at all costs. The men of the line knew the price of failure, if they managed to get away from the Germans. Still, this was Russian territory proper. It would be defended. For the next few days, the panzers and armored vehicles tried to cross, but were pushed back by intense artillery fire. Reinhardt called on Menstein's 57th Motorized Corps to his south for help, but he was in no position to assist. The 57th, on Reinhardt's right flank, had slowly cut its way through the forests of Opachka and Novgorod to a position just west of Lake Ilmen. But because there was only one real road from the Stalin line south of Orstov to their current position, the motorized troops were soon 50 miles in front of the marching infantry. Manstein was not only not able to help his comrades along the Luga River to his northwest, but his own plan of cutting the route between Leningrad and Moscow by positioning his troops about 60 miles or 97 kilometers southeast of Leningrad was endangered, as he was no longer able to move forward in the face of intense Soviet artillery. If the Soviets were ever going to seriously counterattack, not because of their superior forces, but because an enemy force had been isolated by the terrain, as was Manstein's, now was the time. So, on July 14th, Lieutenant General Datutin, the new Chief of Staff of the Northwestern Front, ordered the 11th Army, supported by the 1st Army Corps, to lay into the German troops. They came in two wings, 
the northern attack, made up of the 10th Mechanized Corps, the southern of the 16th and 22nd Rifle Corps, came in and put units in between the 8th Panzer Group, the most advanced unit, from the rest of the 56th Panzer Corps. Even further behind the latter group, the 3rd Motorized Corps and the Toptovkin pushed forward for the next two days, fighting every inch of the way, and eventually making it to assist the 8th Panzer Division. But by then, July 18th, the 8th had lost 70 of its 150 still operational tanks. The Russians could not be dislodged until July 18th, when all of the German forces along the road had caught up. But by then, the Panzers of the 18th had been shaken, their confidence gone. It didn't help that they had traveled so far, so fast, that much of their supplies for the last few weeks had to be flown in due to the straggling Soviet soldiers to their rear, not to mention the at least five major partisan armies operating behind them. Von Lieb, the Army Group North commander, once again, as he had before his panzers reached the Stalin line, which made that fight harder than it had to be, ordered his panzers to stop, while the infantry cleared up the area immediately behind them. It would turn out this was now all but impossible, with the constant night attacks of the mentioned partisan units. Still, von Lieb knew there had to be some forward movement, so units were shifted around, the attacks towards the river and town of Luga continued, while less mauled panzer units would advance in a counterclockwise swing, heading east, just below Lake Ilmen, that would hopefully, still cut off Leningrad from Moscow by joining up with Finn soldiers at Serve, just east of Lake Ladoga. Army Group South Last time we saw Rundstedt, commander of Army Group South, decide to send two of his motorized corps south to help the logjam just east of the Romanian border. At whatever cost, the Soviet defenders could not be allowed to reach the Dnieper River. Off went the motorized corps, using the Odessa Road, trying to catch up to Schobert's 11th Army. Meanwhile, Reichenau's 6th Army's northern half, the force had been divided, now containing mostly infantry, would continue heading east to capture bridgeheads near Kiev. We also saw that as Moscow believed that Kiev was still the paramount objective of Army Group South, several counterattacks were launched at the armored tip of the German troops heading due east. They failed, and then the 6th Army's southern half of two motorized corps turned south on July 12th. Moscow and Lieutenant General Kirpanas of the Southwestern Front desperately tried to figure out the objective of this southern advancing force, and then it hit them, or rather Kurpanas, first. The Germans were attempting to block the Soviet 6th and 12th armies from escaping east, so Kurpanas ordered the two armies to head for the Dnieper River. This was on July 17th. But the next day, Moscow intervened and ordered their own retreat, but that the men were to stop and reform their line some 100 kilometers, or 60 miles, short of the waterway. The Stavka was, without knowing it, working with Army Group South 
to destroy these forces. Other Stavka orders were robustly given, but half-heartedly carried out. A mechanized corps was ordered to the Uman region, some 120 miles or 200 kilometers to the south of Kiev, to stop the surprising German troops who were now headed south. But they had by this time abandoned the area. The 11th German army that had crossed the Dnieper River to the north of the defiant southern Soviet troops were able to move in behind them and take the very area the Stavka had ordered them to line up at. By July 21st, Kleist's panzers were in the same area. The 6th and 12th Soviet armies were all but surrounded by now, except for one narrow corridor to their northeast, and that was because of Novoleski's 2nd Mechanized Corps showed up, where the German 47th Motorized Corps tried to link up with the 17th Army, just east of Venista, but the Russians got there first. Still, the 6th and 12th were in mortal danger. Together, they comprised 24 divisions, one airborne and two anti-tank brigades. But since Barbarossa commenced, they had suffered over 46,000 casualties and had another 27,000 men missing. The remaining 130,000 men were tired, afraid, and running out of everything. They still had their 1,000 guns and 384 tanks, but not much in the way of ammunition or fuel. Surrounding them were 13 well-stocked German divisions and 200 tanks. The Stavka by now had learned of their mistakes, i.e. the true situation on the ground, and ordered the two armies to push eastward and to join up with the 26th Army. But Kleist got wind of this. The Russian radio signals were anything but guarded. So ordered two more infantry divisions and the SS Adolf Hitler Motorized Regiment to help seal in the trapped Russian soldiers. In very short order, these additional German forces were in place. General Ponidelin, in command of the two armies, halted his men's attempt to break out. It would have been suicide. Instead, he sent a message to the Stavka saying the men were near the breaking point, and he had no idea of how to save them. The leadership replied, by putting the forces under the command of the Southern Front, of Lieutenant General Tulinev, who then ordered them, you guessed it, to head east and break out of the encirclement. Given their current location, that meant smashing through the German 48th Motorized Corps something men without tanks or large guns could not be expected to do. But there was a way out. To the southeast of the Russians, and the Germans were still about 60 miles or 100 kilometers away from them, along the Dnieper River, the Soviet 18th Army stood, and, as yet, there were no German forces between themselves and the 6th and 12th Armies. Saving their fellow soldiers was one thing, but they weren't about to charge into this ever-strengthening trap. Yet the Stavka did not know of this opening, and word could not be gotten to them, given the pathetic quality of the communication systems of the area. So the Stavka ordered Tulinev, and he ordered the armies to break out to the east. We now know that Moscow still believed the Germans' objective was to take control of these several bridges over the Dnieper, 
So they, the leadership, thought they were being wise, covering two objectives with one order. By ordering their men to escape and, two, placing them along the river, the invaders' objective. But the bridgeheads were not the Germans' objective. The destruction of those two Russian armies were. So, as the 6th and 12th geared up to advance, the Germans, from almost every direction, advanced on them. Yet the Russians somehow held out and offered up battle. Many of the men dying, but those still alive, refused to surrender. This carnage went on for four days. On August 1st, Ponidolin radioed the Stavka. The situation has become critical. The encirclement of the 6th and 12th armies is complete. Please clear the way by committing new forces. There is no ammunition. Fuel is running out. But the Stavka could do nothing for the 6th and the 12th. However, they could use the time it took for these men to die to strengthen Kiev. So they did. Also, the 18th Army, still to the southeast, was ordered to move away to the east and live to fight another day. Uman, another important city of the Ukraine, to the south of Kiev, fell, the same time the messaged plea went out. As other Soviet units, or rather their remains, were pushed away or captured, the men of the 6th and the 12th were completely, literally, surrounded. On August 4th, a few supplies were dropped over the trapped armies. It didn't amount to much. But that was the last time any serious attempt was made to support or assist the two armies. Clearly, they were on their own. So, taking the initiative, Kostensko's 6th Army lunged east, while Ponida Lin's 12th Army, though he was in charge of both, ran to the south, hoping this would confuse the Germans. But no one was fooled. A trail of bodies was the only result. There was another attempt on August 7th. It only got more of the Russians killed. Now, truly out of everything, the Germans came in, shooting as they did. The Russians eventually surrendered. But the Germans had captured some 107,000 men and officers. Four corps commander, 11 division commanders, 286 tanks, and 953 guns. But that wasn't the worst of it. Stalin had death sentences passed on Ponidolin and other ranking officers in absentia for their supposed incompetence and cowardice. And these men survived their time with the Germans, only to be shot when they returned home. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. End note. During the first day of Operation Barbarossa, Lieutenant General Popoff commander of the Northern Front, looked at his maps, knew that Leningrad would be a target, 
and so guessed that the Peskov Highway would soon see German panzers. So his political commissar, Zandoff, who was not much of a soldier, figured out there was other ways to defend the motherland. Soon the Soviet political officers in the area to the south and west of the major city had 200,000 civilians organized to dig anti-tank ditches in front of the city. Within weeks, hundreds of miles of ditches and trenches were created, as were 15,000 fighting positions. This does not take into account the 22 miles of barricaded woods also put up before Leningrad. Still, the Germans could, and probably would, find ways around this, or use POWs to fill in the ditches. So, two-thirds of a million civilians were evacuated from Leningrad by August. As mentioned numerous times, the various Soviet armies, except for the most part those along the border when the war broke out, were suffering from a shortage of every kind of equipment. It certainly did not help that during the second half of 1941, Moscow was attempting, while fighting the Nazis, while trying to move millions of men around to far-flung places, to take apart and move as many factories of heavy industry as possible. The various entities that had been producing the tanks, planes, guns, artillery, shells, and bullets that were so desperately needed. What's worse, the vast majorities of these factories were in western Russia, like Leningrad and the eastern Ukraine. As with the rapid and complete overhaul of the Soviet military hierarchy, the GKO created the Council for Evacuation, which had the task of moving all possible industrial centers to the Urals, or Siberia. But this was not simply a matter of taking apart large structures, numbering them, and rebuilding them after moving for thousands of miles on a train. Did the new proposed location have nearby raw materials needed for whatever enterprise the factory undertook? What structures were already there? How could this new building fit in with what already existed, so as to minimize the time for the shipped building to be up and running? Where were the people to live and sleep when not working? Most destinations did not have the required living quarters for the mass of people about to descend, so they had to be built first. The only workers not being called upon to move to the east were being called up for military service. But what was the right balance of drafting skilled workers versus leaving them to produce goods needed by the military? A site would be chosen only after considering many factors. Then construction crews would be sent out to sleep under the stars until enough housing had been erected. Then there was the issue of adequate power to run the newly displaced factories. And yet, the scale of this redeployment is hard to truly appreciate. One factory took 8,000 rail cars to be moved. Those rail cars were already under the threat of German air raids until out of reach of the Luftwaffe when they got to the Far East. The Germans had come at Leningrad so fast that only 92 factories were moved before most were behind the enemy lines. The latter summer months of 1941 mostly dealt with dismantling the structures, which meant they were not contributing to the war effort. 
In October and November alone, more than 500 buildings and just over 200,000 workers were taken away from Moscow alone. Yet not everything could be moved in time, so it had to be destroyed. Yet in some areas, the infrastructures were left alone on purpose, but sabotaged on a regular basis, which had given the Germans hope, but no clear results. Hitler and his generals were surprised by this willful destruction that took the Soviets decades to build. What's more, they, the invaders, had been counting on these facilities and their workers to meet production quotas. After all, they were taking on the largest army in the world. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.